Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. We're going to go deep into a verse that I'm sure many of you have studied many times before. You might even know the initial midrash we're going to share, but we're going to go do like midrashic work on the midrash. Uh, the pasuk is uh, the verse about Rivka's pregnancy. Right? She's barren, as her, as her mother-in-law Sarah was. She pleads to God, or actually uh, Isaac pleads to God on her behalf. God remembers her, and she goes from having no children in her womb to two children in her womb. They were twins in her belly. Um, it's unclear if the Torah wants us to know that we wants us to know that they were twins in her belly or wants us to think that she knew, right? I'm sure the ultrasound technology was very, very uh, rudimentary back then. So we may have knowledge that she did not have, and that's significant, um, except that the Midrash, as we're about, about to read, imagines that she was aware that there was something happening in her belly that was not normal, and that she was aware of a duality, okay? And let's remember that duality, because the duality can be related to two different human beings or dual urges inside the same human being. Everyone has the sheets? The boys, I'm going to untranslate that, in her innards, right? Rotsates can mean a lot of different things. It's translated here as struggled. It could be grappled. It could be like wrestled. Uh, we're not sure exactly the, uh, the way the verse wants us to um, understand it, but it's whatever it is, it's a lot of movement and it's uncomfortable for her because she feels it. She feels it so much that she takes us, depending on our understanding of the next phrase, to a place of existential wonder and um, and morose feelings. But Tomer Inken, and she said, if so, so we should, we the Pshat seems to suggest that if so is related to the If it's going to be like this, if my pregnancy is going to be like this, and if this kind of portends something about what their births are going to be, Lama Ze Anochi. A lot of ways of translating that. The simplest says, why am I? When someone says, why am I? What are they really asking? Why am I alive? And what's the unspoken part of that? I'm not sure I want to be alive. Right? If someone says, why am I alive? They're either asking, what's the purpose of life? Or it's an important question. Doesn't seem to be what she's saying here. It's not, it's not a, what's the purpose of life version of why am I alive? It's like, oh my God, why, why should I be alive through this? This is intolerable. Vatelech, she goes, lidrosh et Adonai. Such an interesting phrase. We're not going to focus on that on this, but in and of itself is an interesting phrase. Lidrosh means to search. Midrash at the core is from the root darash, which means to search, to seek out a deeper meaning of something. But she's, um, the, and the et in biblical Hebrew can be a direct object and, and it can also be with. So it could be that, that she went to seek out with God, meaning to seek out answers with God, from God, or she went to seek out God, right? And in, in modern Hebrew, the et is only a direct object. In biblical Hebrew, the et can also mean with, okay? Um, so that's some of the possibilities of what the verse means. Before we look at Rashi, who quotes a Midrash, some of you may know, any questions or comments on the verse itself? Anything that jumps out at the verse? Okay, so I'm going to repeat for those who are on Zoom. Marshall's asking, what, what's the ze in Lama Ze Anochi? What are the possibilities of what ze could be? Because ze means this. What are the possibilities of what the antecedent to ze is? I think the word, the word ha'avah means struggle. 
exists only because it's masculine tense, masculine uh, Ah, so the ze is masculine, so whatever ze is referring to is masculine, so Marshall is suggesting the word ma'avak, the struggle, or any singular masculine noun that might refer to our experience in the belly, but presumably the ze is what, she, what we just learned about, the experience of her being pregnant with these two. Any other comments, questions on the verse itself? Okay. Um, this is Rashi. Rashi's quoting a midrash, and the midrash is going to play around with the fact that many um, there are three letter Hebrew roots where the second letter is doubled and etymologists um, have opinions that suggest that it might be that it's intensifying of the two letter root with the second letter doubled. So if ratzatz doesn't mean something entirely by itself, ratzatz, it might be an intensifying of rats. What does rats mean? Run. Okay, so it, the, the Midrash is built on the supposition that one of the things that ratsatz, which is the root of vayirotetsu, means is running, but not just like like a, a jaunting, but like an intensive running. Okay, vayirotetsu. Al korchacha, against your will, meaning you have to admit, hamikra hazeh omer darsheni. This verse is screaming out, interpret me. This is a wonderful use by Rashi of this phrase. Ze omer darsheni is Jew speak for something's amiss here. It's used even today, even not in textual terms. Like if, I don't know, you come upon a situation that it's confounding, you say, Zelmer Darshani. This is like, this is like, you know, calling out to be uh, interpreted. Why is it a wonderful use by Rashi? Because it's in the verse itself, even though it's not the word he's speaking on, that we have the phrase, Vatelish Lidrosh same root. Right? So Rashi knows that the notion of searching something out for deeper meaning is actually sourced in this verse, in the second half of it. He's saying it's the first half of it that, that is itself calling out for Midrash. What was the content? What was the experience of this Ritzitza? At the moment, he's using both Sadis and the root, whatever Vayirotsutsu means. What was the experience of this Ritzitza such that she was driven to a point where she said, why am I even alive? Right? It suggests that those two things were connected and as a reader saying, we need to know more about this, right? There, there are complicated pregnancies. I've never been pregnant, but some of you in the room have, right? And there are some pregnancies that are, that are deeply uncomfortable. It's got to be a pretty harsh pregnancy for someone to say, I'm not sure I even want to be alive, right? So what was going on? We need an answer, Rashi says, to explain why the discomfort of this pregnancy with twins got to such a level that she questioned whether or not existence was worth it, right? That's, that's the question. By the way, Rashi, interestingly, those of you in my Rashi class on Wednesdays know this, oftentimes Rashi does not ask the question. He just gives you the answer. And you have to divine the question backwards. Here, he's telling you what the question is. The question is, what could have been so problematic about her experience of the pregnancy, the Ritzitza, such that she would ask such an existential question? Rabotenu darshu l'shon Ritza. The rabbis drashed it out as if ratzatz is the language of rats or ritza, running. And Rashi's telling us something in the, in, in the language here. He's saying, I'm not 100% convinced that that's actually the meaning of the Hebrew word, but I think that I want to bring to you what the sages, uh, how they understood it, and they understood it midrashically, interpretively. It may not be the exact pshat, but there's something to it, right? Kshehaita overet al pitchei Torah shall shame forever. Whenever, whenever Rivka was walking through her neighborhood 
and she would pass by, you have to suspend some disbelief here for a second, pass by the doors of the yeshiva of Shem and Ever. Shem and Ever are who? Anyone know? Aren't they Noah? Noah? Okay, so, so Shem is one of Noah's descendants, Shem, Ham, Yafet, and a further descendant later on was Ever. Ever is probably the word from which we get Ivri, a Hebrew, is a descendant of Ever. And there is a expansive, midrashic, imaginative understanding that these descendants of Noah, before Avraham, not only before Sinai and Moshe, before Avraham, what do they do? They establish yeshivas. They were yeshivas where Torah was studied and the Shulchan Aruch was studied and the 20th century Mishnah Burra was studied. They studied it all, right? And inside the, midr- the midrashic imagination, this is not strange. This is, of course, so what else have they been doing? Either they were engaging in idolatry. No, they were. some people in that generation were already studying pre-Torah. Whenever Rivka would walk by the houses of the many ancient pre-Abrahamic yeshivot, sorry, not pre-Abrahamic, what am I talking about? Well, right, they were established pre-Abraham, but in this generation they're post-Abraham. Uh, Yaakov, one of the babies to be born, Ratz would run from the root of uh, and would kind of squirm, let's say it, to come, to come out. The image being infant um, fetus Yaakov had, a, ha, had such a, a sense of Torah that whenever his mother would walk by a yeshiva, he would say, I want to be born now and study Torah now. I'm coming out right now. I want to be a student of this yeshiva. That's my goal in life, right? There's, there's obviously, we're in the realm of symbolism here. It's, it's somewhat fanciful somewhat laughable symbolism, but serious symbolism, that she had two babies, one of whom before birth was destined to be a yid, the study text, um, and whenever she would walk by uh, palaces of idolatry, Esav, let's say, Esav, the other one, would squirm and try to emerge. Remember that in the, in the rabbinic imagination, Esav equals Edom, equals Rome, equals Christianity. It's it's one association, right? Whether or not that's fair historically, right? The Romans were considered to be the descendants of the kingdom of Edom. Edom descended from Esav. So first, it represents idolatry, the idolatry of the Romans. It uh, represents the suppression of Jewish expression, and then eventually supplanted by Christianity when Christianity uh, took over the Holy Roman Empire. That's all built in to the rabbinic imagination if you're thinking about this in the 3rd, 4th, 5th century CE, and certainly Rashi, Right, Rashi living in the 11th century in the era of the Crusades, to him, Esav are the Crusaders. Esav are the Christian marauders who might say they're monotheists, but to the, to the medieval Jews, they were not. They are their own, this generation of idolaters. They all descended from Esav. Esav bad, Yaakov good, and it started in utero. Okay. Um, so the reason I brought that midrash is because you needed to understand the next one. We're understanding that she... Um, was experiencing this internal struggle in her womb with the next generation already fighting uh, about what the true path in life ought to be. Okay. On Lidrosh et Adonai, which is the Rashi on the next comment of the verse, next part of the verse, that she went to seek out God. Why? According to Rashi, this is source three. She agidla ma tehe besofa. That God would tell her or that someone would tell her, what would be, if you literally translate, translate it, in her end, b'sofa, b'sof shala, what would be the end of her? So now I'm asking you, 
What do you think Rashi is saying? What do you think Rashi is saying, the verse is saying, when, she, when Rashi says that she went to this oracle so that it, God, would tell her what would be her end, how it all would end? What do you think he's saying? What, what, what information was she trying to learn? Okay, so Irv is saying that maybe what Rashi is saying is how the pregnancy would end, right? Who's going to come out first? Who's going to be dominant? And will my turmoil be, I don't know, resolved or be worth anything? Okay, what else? What else could she mean, according to Rashi? Fran? Ah, so she wants not just Oracle for the end of her pregnancy. She wants Oracle for the end of time. She sees into the future... Yaakov Esav, Jew, oppressor of Jew, Jew Roman, Jew idolater, Jew Christian, Jew, a particular type of Christian who oppresses the Jew. And she wants to know if I'm suffering so much from that for now, is it at least going to end up with us on top? Right? Am I suffering this much? And then once they're born and they have children and grandchildren, great grandchildren, it's still going to be a struggle for my people? She wants to know is, it, is this suffering worth it? Maybe it'll be worth it. Maybe I'm about to give birth. To the one who's going to be dominant, who's going to rid the world of idolatry and be dominant over the descendants of Asaph. All right, I'll, 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 I'll sacrifice my comfort for the next few months for that. That's okay. Maybe that's what she was asking. What else? Other possibilities? Joel? I think so. I thought about the Nephilim. What happens when I die? Who's going to take care of these children? Who's going to raise them? God? The movies she said, of course, is some kind of prophecy that you're Fascinating. So Joel said, for the sake of those on Zoom, maybe the sofa is literally at the end of her. Sof shela, right? I am bearing these boys. They're already fighting each other. Since I have a little bit of Ruach HaKodesh, a little bit of, um, you know, uh, prophecy in my own, I know that, that uh, my hubby is going to love uh, one of them. And once I'm gone, what's going to happen to the one I imagine is going to be my favorite, Yaakov, okay? Several different possibilities. Which one of them is right about what Rashi meant? We don't know. All we know is that there was something, according to Rashi, that she wanted to find out the conclusion, the resolution. By the way, a very human urge. Right? Don't you want to know how it's going to end in Gaza? Don't you want to know how it's going to end in the Middle East? Don't you want? Don't 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 we all want our most um, um, confounding? Uh, challenges to be resolved for us. Wouldn't it be great if we had an oracle we could go to and say, please, I'll, I'll shake the eight ball. How's it going to turn out? So this makes sense inside the story. It also makes sense outside the story. It makes sense inside the story because this is a woman suffering in pregnancy and she wants to know, is it going to be worth it? Are they going to live? Who's going to be in charge? And this makes sense outside the story. Every Midrash is operating inside and outside the story. Right? There's the Mashal and the Nimshal. Outside the story is... We would like to be able to have our grand mysteries and challenges uh, resolved for us so that we know is our suffering going to be worth it. And, of course, we rarely have that opportunity because no one has that pure prophecy. It's an age-old human urge to, to wonder and believe that someone has answers that are obscure to us in a given moment. With that in mind, look at source four. Hamek Davar. This, uh, the, the words ha'mektavar means go deep into the thing. It's the commentary in the Torah written by the Nitziv. Nitziv is an acronym for by Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. Uh, he was a Rosh Hashiva in Volozhin in the end of the 19th century. and has a wonderful, uh, relatively easy to understand, meaning pretty simple Hebrew commentary in the Torah that's still a beloved 
um, commentary to read today. Look what he says. Ha'ikar keperesh Rashi berashbam. The main way, Ikar, to understand this verse is as Rashi explained it, and as Rashbam, who was Rashi's grandson, as he explained it. Rashbam has his own commentary on the Torah. Not all of it is extant. There are certain verses of the Torah that has no Rashbam. Sometimes it's very interesting to see how Rashbam clearly learned something from his Saba, and sometimes it's interesting to see how Rashbam disagreed with his Saba. And I forgot the ages. How I, I know that Rashbam knew his grandfather, but I don't know how old he was when Rashi died. But he's saying, basically, in this situation, Rashi and Rashbam got it right. Lishol et hanavi, that, he, that she went to ask the Navi, the prophet. You can ask a question on this in this, in this moment, which is, which prophet? What prophet was alive back then? What, what, it, was she, we would have thought that she went to ask God directly. He's saying that she went to go ask some prophet. Dat Adonai, the, 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 the knowledge of God or the wisdom of God, and what God wants by this. The low Karamban, don't understand it like Nachmanides, 13th century Spanish commentator, Zal, of blessed memory, Sheperesh Tfilah, right? So if you look at Ramban's commentary in this verse, I didn't bring it. Ramban says, what does it mean when it says that she went to seek out God? She went to pray, right? That makes sense, right? If you were, in, I assume that one of the reasons you came to pray this morning is to have an, uh, an audience with God, to, to hear God and to be heard by God. So maybe Ramban says what she went to do is to go daven. She went just to, not for answers, but just to, just to um, be in the presence of God. According to Hamek Debar, that's not what it means. And it's interesting how he explains why. The ilut if she was just going to daven, lo hayala lelech l'makom acher. She'd have to go anywhere. He's focusing on the fact that in the verse... It says, Vatelech li Josh Adonai. She went somewhere. She went on a journey. And the Hamektavar is saying, Ramban, if she was just davening, why would she have had to go anywhere? She could have just davened right there. Vaharenit kablat filat Yitzchak kan. Isaac had just prayed to God, Vayetar Yaakov el Adonai, Vayetar Yitzchak el Adonai, that Yaakov Yitzchak pleaded with God to remember um, Rivka's womb. Did he go anywhere to pray? No, he prayed right there. And guess what? He was heard because she got pregnant. So don't read it as she went to go pray, because if she went to go pray, you wouldn't have needed the word batelech, she went anywhere. Ella lidrosh minavi, rather she went to go seek out a prophet, shehu ro'eh, a prophet who sees ma'sha benistar v'ne'elam, that which is hidden and concealed. And then he goes into a little mini sermon on two different types of prophecies or, 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 or prophets that he understands do exist in the world. Shnei ofanei navi. There are two styles or types of prophets. Achat, mehashem, mashimedaber imol Prophet number one is the prophet who's getting a clear line of communication from God as to what God wants to say to God's people now. Right? So um, the biblical prophets that we might put in this category are like Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah walking around Jerusalem before the destruction of the second temple, the first temple, who is um, castigating the contemporaneous Jewish community for their idolatry and for their bloodshed and for the way in which they are um, uh, throwing off the yoke of, of God and God is angry at them. And according to Jeremiah, he has a, he has a clear pathway to what God wants to say. He's communicating to the people what God wants to say to them now. That's one type of prophecy. Bet, What's the other type of prophet? Haro'ed varim ne'almim. The one who sees hidden and concealed truths. 
Baruch HaKodesh, through the Holy Spirit. This is the type of prophet, in the Hebrew, the word is, who is, uh, which is called a one who sees, right? The English word for the type of prophet in that category is a seer, right? S-E-E-R, right? The one who, who sees deep things. The Avraham Hayanavi. By the way, Abraham is alive at this part of the story, right? So Avraham was, um, wait a second, Abraham was just buried, right, right, right. So Abraham um, is alive, but he was only the prophet of the first category. He couldn't see into the future. He didn't have Ruach HaKodesh. He was just a portal through which God could communicate to the world. Mishum Hachi, because she couldn't go to her father-in-law, Abraham, because he wasn't that kind of prophet. Halacha Ladam Gadol. She went to some other great man. Interesting that the Netziv is trying to imagine that there was another person in the generation of Abraham who was an even greater uh, prophet, or at least a prophet of a different type, that she knew of him, that he, know, that he sees things and he knows things. Right? So if you boil down the Hamek Davar you know, into something um, concise, basically saying that she went to get her questions answered. She couldn't go to the type of prophet who only, who only was delivering the word of God at that moment. She had to go to the type of prophet who could see into the future, and resolve how things were going to turn out. Reactions to that? Yes, Fran. Um, common to have seers around, so you could kind of like a therapist, as it were, so tell me what's going to happen in my life kind mm -hmm. of thing. Right, so... So, Not necessarily a man greater than Abraham, but uh, someone who is great in this particular regard. They have a, they're a specialist. A specialist. A specialist <laughs> prophet who can see into the future and, and resolve how things are going to turn out. But I won't even, I'm not even sure a Navi, but more of a Ro'eh, kind of a seer, kind of yeah. um, looking in the crystal ball, kind of Mahavdi. Well, maybe. <laughs> anyway, here's your. Hold it for a second. I won't hear. So, right. So the, the crystal ball looker who can see how things are going to be in the future is not necessarily the classic biblical category of a Navi, right? We think of a Navi as a truth teller in this moment, right? The one who, who is communicating God's clearest instructions now, but she needed something else. She wanted to know how it was going to happen in the future. And even Avram couldn't tell her that. Anyone else in this section? Okay. Yes, Rebecca. Um, it strikes me as interesting that she doesn't consider that she can ask God herself, that you have to have some sort of intermediary, this prophet, in order to inquire of God. It's an interesting relationship that must have been more, you know, the norm, right? That you have this prophet as intermediary. Yeah, and, and the question the question that, that your comment makes me think about is, is this a gender thing, right? Is this that had, she, had it been a male character, the male would have been able to go directly to God? Or is this the distinction between prayer on the one hand, which is just between you and the Holy One, and predictive prophecy where you need a, a, a particular specialization, um, how it's conferred upon you in the ancient world, who knows, right? How anyone understood that person actually was accurate, who knows? 
right. She she goes to find someone to do this task for her because she's not capable of asking it of God herself. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, turn the page. Go to source five. Remember I said before that, that whatever is happening in her womb, it's representing a duality, right? And so the primary way that duality is understood is a duality between two children and then two peoples and then two nations and two ways of understanding the world, right? The Jew and basically everyone else, right? And this sets up the, the, the classic and tragic dynamic we're in right now on some level, right? Uh, there's a, there's a, a line on Talmud that's used over and over again that says, Leolam Esav Sone et Yaakov. It always has been and it always will be that Esav hates Jacob. This is the Talmud's way of saying to us 2,000 years later, oh, there's still anti-Semitism in the world? Yeah, we know. Yeah, of course, because it, it has always been since they were struggling in the womb that they were going to be understanding reality in different ways. And if you and don't waste your trying time trying to eradicate this age-old hatred, it's the way it's always been. Okay? That's one way of understanding the duality playing out in Rivka's womb. It's not the only way of understanding this duality. And for that, we are thankful for Hasidic texts, because Hasidic texts read against the grain, even against um, Midrashic grain. So this is Kol Simcha, the voice of Simcha. Um, I love names of rabbinic texts, because what they often did is they would take their name, and they would find a biblical phrase that um, was evocative for people, but also said something about what they were doing. So Kol Simcha, the voice of Simcha, is because his name was Rabbi Simcha, but Kol Sason the Kol Simcha, but he's, all, he's also naming his book after the uh, the prophecy that one day the land of Israel will be filled with the sound of joy and gladness and the sound of bride and groom. This is Rabbi Simcha Bunim of Pshischa. Okay, this is what he what he says on the verse. Svura Haita Rivka. Rivka had the following thought: Kiven Echad Again, he's also living before the age of ultrasound, but he's saying. She didn't know that she was going to have twins, right? How, how could she have known, right? How, how, how could she have been so sensitive to know that all the ritzitsa going on her belly represented four legs and not two legs? All she knew is that her innards were in turmoil. She didn't know it was twins. And if she didn't know it was twins, then according to him, none of what she was experiencing had to do with a future battle between Esav and, and Yaakov, between the Jew and the non-Jew. She didn't know she was giving birth to anything more than one person, one nation. But that that um, squirming to get out, that he was trying to get out with liad batemidrash. On the one hand, as she would as she would walk by yeshivas, liad and she would walk by the houses of idolatry. Eino that's the word the marshals were for, was nothing other than the struggle hasmali, the symbolic struggle, bein hayetzer hatov or bein so according to the Hasidic text here, this is not the age-old battle between the Jew and the one who hates the Jew, but the age-old battle within the Jew, within the human being, to be drawn to things that are good and right in the world and to be drawn towards negative influences, the Yetzir Hara. Shepam mitgaber ha Sometimes the evil inclination wins. Lehitgaber means to be victorious. And that evil inclination is begging you, the part of you that has from Yetzirah. Like, raise your hand if you have Yetzirah. Right? All of us, right? So the part of us, when we're when they're experiencing moments where the Yetzirah is winning, then when we walk by the literal or proverbial houses of sin, we feel ourselves getting all worked up. 
We're drawn to it. We're, there, we have urges. We have base human urges and lurid urges and urges to sin. And they get excited when they have an opportunity to do so. That does happen. If we, if we don't want to admit it, we're fooling ourselves and other people. Upam, sometimes, thank God, sometimes the, the positive inclination wins. The positive inclination says, I need to go do a mitzvah. I need to go help someone. I need to go be more righteous. I need to be more, more patient. And that battle is happening inside us at all times. Therefore, she really wanted to know. How is it going to all turn out? How is the internal battle going to resolve itself? That was in the heart of her son. According to Simcha Bunim, this had nothing to do with Esav. She knew Esav was there. Nothing to do with the Jew and the Christian. Nothing to do with the, work, the yeshiva student and the idolater. It's, what's, it's the status of what's going to happen inside the heart of every yid. Who would deliver the final blow? And win the war. I love this commentary because it's, it's a very honest commentary, right? You have a, like a very pious Hasidic rabbi basically admitting like I, all these were given as sermonettes. He's standing in front of his kahal and saying, when I walk by that place in the corner of town, depending on what kind of mood I'm in, sometimes my Yetzir Havra is rustling inside of me, trying to be born, pulling me towards it, right? And thank God, most of the time when I walk by the yeshiva, right, my Yetzir Hatov is, is uh, welling up inside of me and I go into that place instead. But I'd be lying to you, kahal, if I told you that I was never confronting and battle, battling my Yitzhah Hara. And the question that Rivka was wondering, the question that every Jew should wonder is, who is going to deliver the final blow and win the battle? And of course, it's entirely up to each and every one of us. Right? So it's left as a question. And what Rivka was dealing with in pregnancy, or what she bequeathed by giving birth to Yaakov, is that every future descendant of Yaakov will be plagued and challenged and ultimately be ennobled by this very question. Whom am I allowed to win? How is this running going to end up? What's going to be the end of all the accounting of my runnings in life? Am I going to run to the good? Am I going to run to the bad? Am I going to run to the good more than I run to the bad? And what am I going to teach the next generation about how to do that type of running? So um, I thought this was a, a worthy uh, exploration. Um, and uh, when, we, when it says, Drosh, and she went to seek out of course, that's the very process that we're all in every single time we go to the text to go deeper into it and to see which ways that the text can continue to challenge us in our spiritual and personal and religious lives today. Rabbi? Yes. Do you have time for me to say something, one thing fast on that last one? Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, because whenever I see his name, I think of the first thing I learned, which I think is the same one, which is the one who said, in one pocket, I have thing that says I am but dust and ashes. And the other one, I have the note that says the world was created for me. And to me, that illuminates the end because you have to be someone who thinks the world is created for me in order to know that it's time and what that final decisive action would be. Yeah, that's a, a Hasidic teaching that was attributed to many, many different Hasidic masters, right? The utter humility of I'm nothing uh, but dust of, of the earth and the utter uh, nobility of saying that God created the world just for me. You mean it's not just in this 
I thought it was Simcha Bunim. No? It's attributed to Simcha Bunim. It's also attributed to Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav. Um, uh, it, it may be knowable who said it first. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.